Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, good morning. And we are still uh, talking about the aftermath and uh, in the wake of the Durham report that is not really resulting in any kind of um, accountability. It's just more of a suggestion of of things that we already knew. And uh, some of the members of Congress are suggesting um, some accountability in the form of defunding the FBI, um, making sure that uh, there are some steps that can be taken. But of course, uh, Congress doesn't have the ability um, to be law enforcement. And so when you have a Biden DOJ that is out of control and is clearly biased uh, in one direction only, and you have an FBI that is more concerned about uh, coming after their political opponents than Uh, making sure that they are actually enforcing in an unbiased manner the rule of law, then you get uh, what we have been seeing over the last seven years, which really has probably been going on for a lot longer. We've just now um, seen this with President Trump specifically and um, have been finally attuned to it, just like election integrity issues. That's been going on for decades, but we have seen that only increase and it's been brought kind of to the fore through uh, more of the alternative media like we are here at AFR, uh, not necessarily the mainstream media. So I'm going to talk with uh, President Trump's Trump's spokesperson, Liz Harrington, uh, later on in the show. Uh, But right now, I want to welcome Representative Bob Good, who, of course, is a congressman from Virginia, to talk about uh, his his uh, questioning of Biden's education secretary. Um, there was a piece in LifeSite News that was talking about Loudoun County, Virginia police were investigating disturbing allegations and threats against conservative parents. So good morning, uh, Congressman Good, and thanks so much for joining me again. We always love to uh, talk with you. Good morning, Jenna. Great to be with you, and thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So uh, so this was yesterday and you asked uh, Biden's education secretary if he would support an investigation into violent threats that were made against parents. And he wouldn't really give you an answer. So what was the background of this, uh, the hearing and and also why you know this is so important to all of the parents who uh, who just simply want to be involved in their children's education and genuinely be parents? Well, I think you realize, and probably your whole listening audience realizes, one of the greatest concerns or issues in the country is certainly our education system, our K-12, to as well as our college campuses. That's why I asked to be on the education committee when I was first elected in 2020. And we had the opportunity yesterday to uh, question in a hearing uh, Secretary Cardona, who is just one of many representatives from the Biden administration who continue to represent or, represent or demonstrate, I should say, their incompetence as well as their policies that are so harmful for the country. And so we brought him before our committee to ask him a number of questions. And what I really focused on during my time was the growing evidence of the continued weaponization of the federal government and all the power at its disposal, particularly in the executive branch, against its citizens, 
and against those who don't agree with them politically or dare, dare to challenge the status quo, to challenge the establishment, in this case, to challenge those who are running our government schools. And you have still the unresolved uh, evidence from a year and a half ago with the memo from Merrick Garland uh, instructing the FBI to target parents who show up to school board meetings uh, and express their concerns to the government school uh, leadership, uh, who they are funding with their tax dollars, uh, to express concerns about policies or curriculum or school closings or mask mandates or vaccine mandates or uh, whatever they might be concerned about, radical transgender policies, safety of their girls in their schools. And then you see this Department of Injustice under the uh, abuse of uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland target parents from, for, under threat of law enforcement. And so Secretary Cardona, we had him come before us a year ago, and he claimed ignorance on the, uh, that memo or what the status of the memo was and whether or not uh, action was being taken against parents or whether or not their department was doing anything to protect parents. And so yesterday I used my time to follow up on that. And to your point, uh, with the most recent example of, once again, Loudoun County right here in Virginia, not far from the Capitol where I sit at this moment. Wow. And we all remember that memo. And it, it it's just another illustration, Representative Good, about how the uh, Biden DOJ and the FBI under the Democrat left radical leftists are focusing on targeting political opponents instead of genuinely enforcing the rule of law, which is meant constitutionally to protect things like parental rights and actually protect a parents' ability to go in front of school boards and actually ask questions and uh, have things like constitutionally protected right to to freedom of speech and, and all of these things. And so it's completely turned on its head. And you also mentioned in a tweet yesterday that the same education secretary has led the charge in Biden's war against parents for sexualizing our children's classroom with uh, with radical gender ideology. And so um, so what's the what does accountability look like when you bring uh, the education secretary in before Congress, you ask him these questions. He's not really giving you answers. Um, are you looking at legislative solutions? Yeah, you're exactly right. The the format of congressional hearings, as you know, each member gets five minutes. And so these uh, Biden administration officials, all these secretaries, they're wonderful at filibustering and stalling and trying to use up that five minutes with evading answers and just rambling on about things that were not asked. So you find yourself having to cut them off and, and, and rephrase your question or redirect to another question, not allow them to utilize your time to that effect. But I made the point to him yesterday that this is the same Department of Injustice that arrests and jails pro-life protesters in Pennsylvania, that targets Catholic churches in Richmond, Virginia, again, just outside my district here, and then again uses the threat of law enforcement and retaliation against parents who just have concerns, again, about what's going on in their schools. You could argue, Jenna, that of the many crises and the harm and the damage that's been done to the country under the two years of this Biden administration, between the border and the spending and the weakening of the military and, and the energy crisis and the environmental extremism and all the rest, 
It is the undermining of one sacred trust in institutions such as federal law enforcement and, again, the Department of Justice, that everybody is equal under the law, that everybody is treated equally under the law, and we don't target political opposition or those uh, in retaliation for exercising rights to petition their government for concerns that they have. But that's how this federal government, this executive branch, has responded. To your question. What we've got to do is bring transparency, at least, and accountability in terms of public exposure through hearings. Now, unfortunately, anything that we uh, – the most egregious things that are uncovered through our committee or oversight or judiciary or uh, the select committee on the weaponization of the federal government or the select committee on China or looking after what uh, the whole health situation under uh, Anthony Fauci and so forth, any criminal evidence that's uncovered goes – with a, with a congressional referral to, or a criminal referral to, the, again, the Department of Injustice under Merrick Garland. He is unlikely to act on those things in the next year and a half. However, those don't expire come January 25 when hopefully we'll have a Republican larger majority in the House, a Republican Senate, and a White House, and a new Attorney General, and a new Department of Injustice, and a new Depart- uh, FBI Director, and those sorts of things that will apply the law equally, irrespective of political connections or political viewpoints. So it is important for us to expose it and try to bring that accountability. The other thing the House can do uh, is to utilize our funding to stop funding agencies and departments or the aspects of those that are used to harm the country. And we are looking at that through the appropriations process as we continue to address our debt and spending situation, but also the very funding that's harming the country. So how would that actually work? And and what would that look like when uh, some of your colleagues are calling, for example, for defunding the FBI? And obviously there are some necessary and good and proper uh, functions of the FBI. The entire department um, isn't looking at being disbanded completely. And so can you, through appropriations, uh, specifically target defunding just certain aspects? Or what does that actually look like? We can, and we are working on that. Matter of fact, uh, Right now, I have a spreadsheet of just uh, all of the 12 appropriations bills and uh, the number of targeted cuts that my colleagues and I have put forward uh, towards these different agencies and departments to try to not only rein in the spending since we're borrowing $100 billion a month right now, borrowing and spending $100 billion a month, so we're running deficits of some $1.2, $1.3 trillion a year, uh, so there's not only the fiscal component, but there's also what are the most offensive, harmful, dangerous, egregious spending, uh, and uh, what do we want to target specifically in the appropriations process? So things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, harmful transgender policies, federal funding of abortion, uh, funding of radical ideology like CRT in our military, as well as in our education system. And to your point back to education, Secretary Cardona, what the Biden administration has done through the Department of Education is tied federal funding to uh, the, what's taught in our schools or what the policies are in our schools. So, for example, they want to go after schools. They want to uh, threaten federal funding uh, if you don't comply with their transgender policies for restrooms or bathrooms or sports for the young ladies, and, the, and, and, and not to mention curriculum that's taught, that there's radical CRT ideology taught in our schools, not a class, 
but but the ideology that permeates all of the curriculum and, it, and frames the narrative of you know what kind of a country are we are you know whether or not, not the nation is systemically racist today whether or not we're you know institutionally biased based on race even today those kinds of things so yes we can utilize the funding uh, in the House, and there's going to be battles, not just on this debt ceiling battle that's going on right now, but then as we move through the spring, summer, and fall here into the appropriations process, we're going to target more cuts from a fiscal standpoint, but also from just an, a harmful, dangerous, uh, anti-American, uh, anti-freedom, anti-family, anti-faith, those kind of things that are funded uh, in our various departments of government. And that's so that's so great. And I'm really glad to hear that. And you're absolutely right to call uh, public schools government schools. And I think the, our, our rhetoric as conservatives needs to be exactly that, to remind uh, parents and remind uh, everyone who's listening to media on these issues that they're government schools. And this is why I've long been an advocate for a state sovereignty and not having uh, these government-funded schools having to rely on the federal government and all of those strings that are attached to say, well, if we get money from the federal government for our government-funded schools, then we have to go along with all of these policies. And you know, and it's just it's so frustrating, I think, for parents to see that the the Biden administration and all of these various people that you outlined are actually working against parents instead of allowing them to uh, participate in the process. How they should. They're overreaching, but also do being completely opposite in not protecting parents' rights to participate in their own government and therefore their own schools. And um, and so I really appreciate that, Congressman uh, Bob Good. And in just the last minute I have with you here, what can parents do um, to petition their government better to redress this sort of grievance? Well, I was speaking to a group last night in Northern Virginia at an event that I was at, and I was talking about it doesn't matter what we believe unless we have the courage to fight for what we believe, to stand up and be counted, to take risks. We have to take back our country. Uh, you know, the, the freedom is not passed from one generation to the next. As Ronald Reagan said, it's got to be fought for every generation. It's got to be protected. And we've got to take back our country. So there is no substitute for being advocates, for being activists, for showing up to school board meetings, for holding accountable your elected officials, running for school board, supporting school board candidates, knowing what your kids are being taught in schools, reviewing the curriculum, uh, being dialed in, uh, because it starts with our schools. That is not only important for today, but it's important for tomorrow, as we know. A hundred percent. Well, Congressman Bob Good, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Always love having you on. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And as we continue to talk about policy and the things that are very concerning to all of us as conservatives and uh, the baseline of being Americans, uh, one of the best voices right now is Vivek Ramaswamy, who is running for president under the GOP ticket and for that nomination. And he's been speaking out on a lot of policy that um, a lot of other candidates, and especially historically, have uh, really been 
either hesitant or afraid to speak out on and to declare very firmly uh, what they believe in in terms of protecting and preserving our constitutional rights. So um, Vivek, good morning and thanks so much for joining me. I know it's been a couple weeks since we spoke and um, you have tweeted a lot and been on a lot of media since then. So um, I had to kind of narrow down what I wanted to ask you about this morning. And uh-huh. Um, And two of the main things this morning, um, first, let's start with getting rid of protected classes. You tweeted and said you would be okay with getting rid of protected classes altogether, but to the extent we don't, we should apply those standards even handedly. So um, this, I think, is a really important conversation, especially how we've seen the leftists just going absolutely wild with the disparity of how they treat conservatives versus their own types of protected classes. So, Jenna, I think that this is a core issue in in our time, applying the civil rights laws even-handedly, which we don't do. And what I try to explain to people is when you see the rampant political viewpoint-based discrimination in the private sector today, that is not an accident. It is a product of the law itself, and here's why. When we created these protected classes along the lines of race or gender or sexual orientation, what that does is it is, exp- it is interpreted so broadly by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, that that means you also cannot create what they call a hostile work environment to a member of a protected class. Well, what's a hostile work environment, you might ask? There's good cases on this. It is expressing viewpoints that makes a, or even allowing the expression of viewpoints that makes a member of a protected class feel insecure, feel unprotected, feel like they have been in a hostile work environment. So what does that mean? A grandmother who wore a red sweater on Fridays to celebrate veterans because there's one employee that said they made them feel uncomfortable, that was considered to be potentially a Title VII violation. I'm not making this stuff up. These are just exact cases that you see over the years. So what happens is the law has created the conditions for viewpoint-based discrimination while leaving political viewpoints unprotected. I think that's wrong. So one of the things I've advocated for is to say that if you can't fire somebody because they're black or gay or Muslim or white or Jewish or Hindu or whatever, you should not be able to fire them just because they're an outspoken conservative either. And if you don't want to do that, you know, and so, so the thing I tweeted yesterday was in response to a guy who I like, a libertarian-leaning guy who interviewed me, that he said that, well, Vivek wants to make political expression a protected class, and the main response from a libertarian audience is, no, 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 we shouldn't want one more regulation on businesses. The free market should work this out. I pointed out to them to say that, hey, guys, listen up. I would be fine getting rid of the protected classes altogether But nobody, including libertarians, seems to have the spine to say up and say that and advocate for that. If that's the case, then we have to apply the standards even-handedly to say that we're going to add political expression and political beliefs as a civil right right up there next to race, sex, sexual orientation, religion, and national origin. And Jenna, I know because you're a lawyer and you're smart and you care about this stuff, I went through the detailed justification of that to you beyond just the headline. But I think it's important when we understand that history of the last 60 years, part of how we got viewpoint-based discrimination was that it was baked in to the private sector through the law itself. And therefore, I think it is perfectly legitimate to use the law to actually fix that 
and apply the standards even-handedly. Yeah, and, and this makes so much sense. And and I'm with you on on how the protected classes and referring to, which of course you know, refers to groups of people who are legally protected from being harmed or harassed by laws, practices, all, all of those policies, um, for, for just getting rid of that as, as an entire category because of how much it has been abused or making sure that we have protections for people who are genuinely being harassed now, which is largely a political viewpoint and also what we've seen through the pandemic, which is that people couldn't have a, a conscientious objection to a government mandated vaccine. And then that was ultimately then mandated through their employers. Some employers still mandated. I was talking to um, to someone in Colorado where I'm still bar licensed um, about that yesterday, whose employer still is um, is, is either requiring that or providing, you know, some other sort of accommodation. And um, you can only get a religious exemption if you qualify, not even just a conscientious objection. And so these types of things where, um, and, and it's interesting, Vivek, that you talk about the libertarian mind, because there, there are a lot of listeners here that always, you know, write in and say, if I talk about libertarianism and say, you know, it's not that we don't want government at all, you know, and they try to kind of parse that out. But I, I think from the whole category of libertarians, they don't necessarily see more laws as a good solution almost ever. And I think you're right to highlight that sometimes we do need to utilize those powers of government. So um, so how, how would that look then um, if we got rid of protected classes altogether? Well, I mean, that, that would be the easy thing to do, is that then you actually leave it to the true free market, right? So, so fine, now you get the wish. Somebody can't, the market gets to decide who they hire and who they don't. And I think that could be a perfectly good thing, right? We're, we're, even, if, even if the Civil Rights Acts, you know, you assume they were justified at the time they were passed, if that moment has passed, now we actually leave it to a market to allow a business to decide who's the most competent person for the job without applying any quota systems, without actually applying any sort of governmental interference. They get to make what decisions are or aren't smart for themselves. That's what that would look like. And I think that we would probably have a thriving economy, probably with less discrimination, because competition, I think that a business would be foolish to discriminate on the basis of race or gender, et cetera. They would want the best person for the job. Those would be the ones that end up winning. But that's not the world we have today. And I think as you, you just pointed out, Jenna, that's not the world as it exists today. And that's a political untouchable topic. And so what I'm trying to do is not just be a, you know, let's just say, for the sake of discussion, thought leader here, I want to actually drive us towards pragmatic solutions that we can deliver. I'm running for president not to do it as, you know, an author with interesting ideas. I'm running to govern this country for the next decade and lead a national revival as Ronald Reagan did in 1980. So I think we have an opportunity to do in 2024 to go further with the America First agenda and to unite the country. The way I do that here is by making political expression then a civil right. And that I do think is politically achievable. Mm -hmm. That I do think unites the country, goes beyond political partisanship, and solves this problem of viewpoint discrimination in the private sector, where so many Americans today feel like they have to choose between speaking their minds freely and putting food on the dinner table. Between the American dream and the First Amendment, we are not a country, Jenna, where any American should be forced to make that choice. We're the quintessential nation where you get to enjoy both of those things at once. That is what it means to be an American, and that is what I intend to restore 
by leading this as part of my legislative agenda as the next president. Yeah, and and this is an obvious um, solution with some advantages as well, because we look at other cases, um, for example, churches who are uh, who are forced at some times to employ people that go against their own core mission or their sincerely held religious beliefs, or by imposing things as simple as a dress code between the genders. Uh, you know, and you look at some of those things where it actually works against the employer and works against uh, their their goal oriented mission for existing as an organization mm-hmm. or as a company. And so, protected classes, it's it's actually working against the free market in a lot of ways. And so, I'm really grateful that they, that you are bringing a lot of these policy discussions to the table with good and practical solutions uh, because no other candidate is really talking about some of these core issues that uh, that, that they just don't really want to focus on. And I think it's because they are scared to, frankly, because nobody else has been doing that, especially someone who is actually running for the highest office in the land. The other thing that you uh, pointed out this uh, over the last like week or two that I wanted to get um, your commentary on as well is increasing um, the voting age or having a civic responsibility test similar to those who apply for citizenship in the country before they can vote. And that is also a very hot button issue because the Democrats, of course, say, well, you're undermining democracy if, you know, nobody has access, no one will have access to the franchise of voting and, um, you know, all of these other things that are just kind of hyperbolic nonsense. But um, what's your what's your rationale for that policy and why that's a great solution for the country? So, look, I think that I'm not just going to say what's politically popular, Jenna, and this is not politically popular. And, and even I don't know that it's popular in the Republican primary. I didn't poll this or anything else. But I think that I'm not part of this philosophy of meeting the voters where they are necessarily. I think if you're running to be the president of the United States, you need to lead the country and persuade them of where we need to go. We're not just running from something. we got to be running to something. One of the things I think we need to run to is a vision of what it even means to be a citizen in a constitutional republic. We don't live in a direct democracy. We live in a constitutional republic. That means citizens in that republic have civic duties. That's baked into our Constitution, in the unwritten crevices of our Constitution. You could find it there in a lot of places. It's what our founding fathers believe. It is what I believe. It means to actually be a citizen is you have civic duties. So what I've said is I would support a constitutional amendment that raised the voting age from 18 to 25, but which still allows you to vote at the age of 18 if you either serve in the military or in a first responder role for at least six months, or else if you don't serve, at the very least that you know something about the country. And how we measure that is whether you are passing the same civics test that's required of every single immigrant who's required to become a naturalized citizen, too. And if you don't want to do that, then fine, you at least live for a few years as an adult and experience your country and then vote at the age of 25. I haven't heard a good reason why it's such a bad idea for us to ask an 18-year-old to know something about the country, a minimal amount about the Constitution. And if not that, then at least to serve the country for six months in the military or police. In law enforcement role, I think counts, too. That is, I think, a basic table stakes of what it means to be a citizen. And I think this will actually revive more civic pride. I think it will actually cause young people to want to vote even more. They don't, 18 to 25, they almost don't vote at all. It's less than a quarter that do today. And by the way, not even that they don't vote, less than 15% of them say they're even proud to be American. 
We had a 25% recruitment deficit in our military last year. We're not going to fix the decline of civic pride by just sitting on our hands and complaining about it. We're going to have to think boldly, ambitiously, of how we actually revive civic duty and civic pride in the next generation. Every political advisor, and I'm not kidding you, including donors and otherwise, said, please don't make this part of your platform. No one's <laughs> talking about this. You're just going to hurt yourself. One person said it would be a campaign ender if I rolled it out. My view is I would rather speak the truth at every step of the way and lose this election rather than to win by playing some political snakes and ladders. Well, I think that that's actually the winning strategy, first of all. My sense of traveling the country to grassroots audiences in Iowa, New Hampshire, and elsewhere is that that's what people are hungry for. But either way, that's the way I'm going to do it, one way or another. And and we've gotten a lot required. Yeah, and we've gotten a lot of response even just on this show when you have um, come on so frequently from people who have written in, and they're very happy that uh, you are addressing these types of policies. So just from the you know anecdotal evidence of, of this national program, um, people are very grateful for that and for you speaking up um, it, with truth and addressing these issues that aren't being addressed elsewhere. And I can't wait to see that being addressed on the debate stage. Um, but don't you know, Vivek, that if you know, we actually encourage citizenship and learning something about our government, then mainstream media won't be able to just indoctrinate our 18-year-olds on how to vote Democrat anymore. So, I mean, this would be horrible for the country, and that's what they're going to say, right? <laughs> that is what they're saying. They say it's Jim Crow all over again. Funny thing, Jenna, is Democrats are actually going the other direction, saying we should reduce the voting age to 16, and their justification in certain states like Oregon and elsewhere is that, well, if we trust them to operate a motor vehicle by the age of 18, shouldn't they also be allowed to vote? And my point is voting is not a physical act. Mm -hmm. Voting is an expression of our sacrosanct duty as citizens. But for just going through the motions without even knowing, I mean, let's talk about what are some of the things on that civics test that immigrants have to pass. How many amendments are there in the Constitution? How many branches of government are there? Does the president lead the executive branch of the government? If you're voting for U.S. president, I think it is perfectly reasonable to ask you to know those things, or at least if you don't know those things, to experience the country in a different way by either serving it or at least having lived as an adult, presumably as a taxpayer, for a few years and wait till the age of 25. I just think yeah, that's it, table stakes, or else we have, a, we have a country of people just going through a bunch of motions without knowing why. Yeah, an, an informed electorate is what our founders did envision, and that's how you have the most free and fair elections, beyond, of course, obviously the administration of the election and so forth, but actually having voters who understand the difference between direct democracy and a constitutional republic, understand how our government is supposed to function, so that they aren't taken in by all of these other uh, you know, false sorts of forms that of rhetoric that sound great on maybe a TikTok post, but they actually understand what it is they're voting for. So. Vivek, thanks so much. And you can go to Vivek2024.com to learn more about Vivek. You can also chip in there if you'd like to see him on the debate stage. It's one of those um, those things that uh, the, the RNC and the GOP um, have as one of their standards, to my knowledge. So um, I have donated there because I would love to see Vivek on the debate stage to bring these policies to bear and to have the other candidates running for the GOP ticket actually have to respond to some of these policy questions that we as conservatives should be talking about should be advocating for and should be expecting from our candidates running for the highest office in the land. So we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And as promised, we are going to talk more about the Durham report and uh, this proof in this over 300 page report that there was never any Russia collusion. It was just a giant intentional hoax from Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. We already all knew this, but now, you know, about six seven-ish years later, we're finally uh, getting that in writing. So what does accountability look like? How is President Trump responding to this? And what uh, will this look like moving forward into his campaign to be reelected? Well, joining me now is uh, President Trump's spokeswoman and my good friend, Liz Harrington. And Liz, good morning. Thanks so much for joining me. And I think the question that everyone is really asking is, what happens now? And what accountability can we actually expect uh, if President Trump is reelected? What is his uh, thought process here? Well, good morning, Jenna. Thanks for having me. I mean, that's the key question. We have to have accountability. And this report is great. It's total vindication. But the problem is nothing's changed. In fact, they're getting worse. I mean, instead of just spying and trying to frame the duly elected president of the United States, now they're trying to imprison falsely their leading number one political opponent. So the election interference has not stopped, which I think is the most troubling thing about all of this. Um, But accountability will certainly come when President Trump returns to the White House. He's already released multiple plans about how to clean up the deep state, hold people accountable, and stop this ongoing cycle of corruption, because we have to keep in mind the same people largely who were behind this hoax, uh, the framing of President Trump, the spying on his campaign, they're back in the Justice Department. They are still there leading these witch hunts. Uh, It's the same corrupt people pulling the strings. And and this has got to stop because we will not have a constitutional republic. So President Trump Clearly, he is their number one target because he will clean up the deep state and finally hold this corrupt system to account. Yeah, and that's that's a great point, Liz Harrington, that this has not just continued to happen. It's only increased in terms of the weaponization of government and the targeting of political opponents, um, chief among them, uh, President Trump, and and trying to in any way uh, get him removed from his eligibility to uh, to go back into the White House. And um, one of the, the questions that I've gotten from a lot of listeners and also those who are skeptical about supporting uh, President Trump again is that uh, one of the people that's still there was one of his own uh, political appointees, Christopher Ray, And, you know, we've seen that there have been some uh, personnel decisions and things over his first four years um, that, you know, in, in my opinion, at least, uh, weren't really fulfilling that promise of, of draining the swamp. So how is how is he looking at that and what confidence um, can we have as Americans supporting him um, that he actually will make a different or better, however you want to characterize that, decisions on personnel and um, some of these other deep state issues moving forward? Well, you have to remember, he also made probably the best personnel decision you could make, which was firing James Comey very early when the entire, you know, political world went nuts and there was extreme pressure to not do that, but it was the right thing to do. And you also have to remember, so that was quite early on when he got rid of James Comey. 
and picked a successor. This is someone who had only spent 17 days in Washington. He was a complete political outsider. He had to rely on some others to kind of, you know, guide him and some of these personnel decisions. But the great news is now he knows everybody. And 2020, I think, certainly for myself and I think for most people looking at the political arena, was a very clarifying moment where people you thought were probably okay and good turned out to be part of the corrupt system or didn't have the courage or very weak. The one good thing we've had since the rigged and stolen election, I think, is a clarifying moment, a real line in the sand where you can see where people actually stand and who has courage, uh, who is weak, and who is corrupt. And now President Trump knows everybody. And so you're not going to have a situation where uh, he is going to not be confident in his personnel choices. He's going to be very confident. He's going to get the exact right people in, and it's going to make a big difference. Again, we didn't know. That's one of his great legacies, Jenna, that I think uh, will be exposed even still in the years to come is just how corrupt the system was. President Trump has exposed that. And that's how we can fix it, because we didn't know what the problem was we were dealing with before. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a great answer, um, Liz Harrington. And, you know, you and I both uh, know from, you know, from how President Trump was a political outsider, you know, coming into Washington. And that was that was what he ran on in 2016. I think we absolutely as a country needed that and needed him in 2016 to come in and to uh, take the reins of government. But he was trusting people, you know, people um, from inside the RNC. And you and I have both seen over uh, the course of, of those four years and in the aftermath of the 2020 election, you know, some of the people even within the RNC that um, were not really on board with his agenda or the agenda of America First and protecting the country, um, but but really with their own uh, political kind of you know swampy or deep state or rhino, whatever characterization you want to put on it, um, that agenda. And so um, with experience and getting to know people does come uh, then you know more of an opportunity to distinguish between who is actually for the America First agenda and who maybe isn't. So um, so I think that's a great response because that's one of the, the main things that I've seen with people who are supporting uh, a different candidate, um, like, for example, Ron DeSantis, who hasn't yet declared, uh, that, that they are for someone because for him because of the personnel decisions that they didn't like about President Trump. Um, and so, you know, as as we move forward into this primary season, um, we've we have seen how President Trump has really been proven right on a lot of things. And the Durham report has as you said, exonerated him completely. And so how much do you think that this actually will matter to the primary and how much is President Trump planning to use what we've learned or at least been um, been validated with with the Durham report as he moves forward? Well, I think it shows really the, the depth of the corruption and what we're up against. And again, proving that President Trump not only has been completely innocent and correct about this this entire time, uh, but why would they do all of this, right? Why would they go to these lengths? Because um, he's the number one target. And why is he the number one target? Because he represents the people. I mean, what is this really about? This corrupt system, they do not want to allow the American people to choose who runs 
this country. That's what this is about. They want to take that choice away. So that's why they've meddled in each of the last successive uh, presidential elections and midterm elections, by the way, because this hoax was going on, you know, in the run up to 2018. It was all lies. It was all on the fake news. I mean, that's another thing that this really exposes the corruption in the mainstream media, how this wouldn't have been possible if you didn't have a uh, a willing and able corrupt partner in the news media to peddle this propaganda, this actual disinformation. So it shows the corruption, but it also shows why President Trump is the one person who is in this unique position to take this uh, menace really on. And he is the one that they fear the most. They go to great lengths to try to stop him. They're continuing that to this day. And I think that's the key takeaway, and he said it as well. We have to remember this isn't some isolated incident that happened you know, six, seven years ago for years. It's happening right now. That's what the Jack Smith sham is about. Uh, they're using the same tactics. They're harassing our campaign. They're harassing his family. Uh, all, they're coordinating with the corrupt New York office, bringing that sham indictment that doesn't even name a crime. I mean, it's gotten worse. And so, again, they're going to such great lengths. It proves that President Trump is the one guy who they actually fear because he represents the American people and he'll hold them all to account. Yeah. And and it's just it is so upsetting and I think continuing to be shocking even though we're all kind of a little bit used to this now of what is actually going on with the targeting of President Trump and and a lot of other conservatives as well. I just had uh, Congressman Bob Good on in the first segment talking about um, how the the Biden DOJ and the Department of Education and the FBI are targeting parents um, just for speaking out at, at school board meetings and so forth. I mean this is something that I think you're absolutely right that, that President Trump has really shined a light on in the last uh, you know six to seven years about how corrupt the system actually is. And so, you know, as, as he is um, focusing on policy, you also mentioned um, the mainstream media and how corrupt they are. I think a lot of people were very surprised to see that he was willing to do the CNN town hall. Um, what was your reaction to that? And, you know, and if you when you spoke with him and, and his uh, reaction, of course, you know, we all follow him on Truth Social and see um, see his posts there. But I thought he did a great job in calling out and fact checking um, not only Caitlin Collins, but some of the other uh, leftist arguments in real time. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you got to remember, it's, it's really about negotiating the format as well. You know, he's not just going in with a sit down, which he can. He's fine. He, I think he's actually at his best when he has one of these combative uh, anchors. But when he's really shines and when he's really at his best, when he's in a room full of the American people, of, of voters. And that was the key. I mean, he was in front of the people. He could talk directly to them. I think the questions from the audience were excellent uh, on the issues. You couldn't say the same about Caitlin Collins' <laughs> questions using the first half hour uh, to push false, you know, media propaganda again. But that's his element. And he, I mean, you just can't escape uh, the type of person he is when he speaks common sense, he's talking directly to the American voter. The American voter can't help but sit there and say, man, this guy is making a ton of sense. We need this leadership again. And that shines through. And so he did an excellent job 
Um, he, he's just, it, that's his element. I really do believe that. And he's not afraid to go in. And you knew uh, you were going to get the, you know, interruptions and the fake fact checks, which, by the way, like literally everything she tried to fact check him on, she was wrong. It was unbelievable. But that just honestly makes him more um, a positive in the eyes of the viewer because they're like, why is she attacking him so much? Let him talk. And then you hear what he has to say. People tend to agree with it because there's just too much common sense. Well, and and that's really what the average viewer now is watching the mainstream media and not buying into their alternative reality and their nonsense um, when they say, oh, this has been debunked or we're fact checking and people know for themselves <laughs> that it's false. And that's one of the things that, you know, even, even people who uh, listen to this show say all the time that um, they love about President Trump is his ability to simply communicate so directly. And so um, so I also have to ask you, uh, Liz Harrington, about um, then the the upcoming debate in August and speaking about, you know, negotiating the format and so forth. Um, President Trump has said, at least on True Social, that he doesn't intend to uh, participate in the first GOP debate. Um, Has there been any negotiation further on that or um, any change in his thinking along that line? Because I think a lot of people want to see him on the debate stage. I know I do. I think that is a format that he absolutely excels in. And I would love to see him um, on that stage with the other candidates talking about policy. Well, certainly everyone does want to see him. (laughs) Obviously, the networks want him to participate. But going into this, you know, he's looking at it. Uh, Why why go in to a network that spent, you know, months propping up uh, his opponent with a shadow campaign with Rupert Murdoch's, you know, book book tour? I mean, it's just it's a negotiating. uh, It's a negotiation in process. We'll see what happens. But, you know, right now, look. He's leading in all the polls by a huge margin. I think a lot of the voters are saying, man, we need to get serious and focused about next year and making sure our elections are secure and uniting behind President Trump, our best fighter. That's where I think a lot of people are coming from. He has no fear or problem debating. But at some point, when you keep doing the same thing, when you know it's going to be a setup to try to diminish him, uh, try to prop up these other candidates who, frankly, aren't even doing well at all. Um, it's it just you have to think about things in terms of tactics. And so he's negotiating. We'll see what happens. But uh, we're kind of sick of the same system, you know, with choosing these moderators who are hostile when it's not a level playing field. And then also choosing the Reagan Library, which is run by the publisher of The Washington Post. So we know what we're getting into, and I think it's it's smart for President Trump to want to negotiate. Yeah, well, and it's the art of the deal, right? So, um, so that that makes a lot of sense. And you're right; we'll see what happens. And um, you know, from my perspective, I really wish and I hope that President Trump stays on messaging to attack the Democrats and all of the you know the mainstream media, and you know, not some of the other conservatives. But you know, um, we all we all know that he will do what he believes to be best. And often, you know, that resonates with the American people. So Liz Harrington, really appreciate it this morning and your time. Thanks so much. And uh, that's all the time that we have this morning for Jenna Ellis in the morning. As always, you can uh, write in with your comments, your questions, guests that you would like to hear from on this show, Jenna at AFR.net. You can also follow us 
on social media on American Family Radio Network, um, Facebook, Twitter, all of that. And also Jenna Ellis in the morning. And I will see you tomorrow. Make it a great day. Continue to speak boldly for truth and fulfill the Great Commission, which is the reason we are all here speaking truth. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.